Well, if you don't know who that was, that was Brother Ken Stone Cipher. How many of y'all know Ken? Raise your hand. All right. Ken, you're getting around, man. That's good. <laughs> Ken is, a, um, is from Magnolia, Arkansas, which is where Elaine Morris is from. Elaine reminds him of that on a regular basis. Amen. As do I, and as I've, I've reminded you today. But uh, Ken, uh, Ken came here. Let's see, I've been here five years in March. I want to say he came here the first year I think I was here. And um, very deep spiritual man looking for a church to finish out his years on earth with and chose us. That is a brother in Christ. Amen? Amen. Ken, thank you. If I can hold back the tears, brother, that song was wonderful because y'all are all staring at a prodigal this morning in the pulpit. And as you can imagine, this message has just brought all types of um, memories to my mind of the graciousness of God and my family. So I will do my best to hold my composure. And as you, if you check your clocks, we got a long way to go. So this is going to be a rough morning. Amen. <laughs> Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 15. This, uh, this portion of the scripture is probably one of the most well-known out of the Bible uh, by people, Christians and non-Christians alike. Most people know the the parable of the Good Samaritan. Most people know that the Samaritan's not here. Obviously, it was earlier, but the, the parable of the uh, lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, most, most people know these stories because they are absolutely uh, heart-wrenching, and most of us have experienced uh, something in the realm of what Jesus talks about in all of these messages. In these parables, as I've told you multiple times, and I'll tell you again this morning because I want you to, to cling to the context of what Christ is doing here, because if you miss that, you miss the meaning of the Word of God. But what is happening here is, is that Jesus has had two or three uh, engagements with the Pharisees uh, at their homes where he is trying to awaken them to the reality that the way they think about the Bible, the way they think about Scripture, the way they think about spirituality is, is wrong and has been wrong for, for generations, and he is trying to bring them back to the truth, the heart, God's Spirit, what he intends with the text. And one of the things you will see time and time again is you will see the Pharisees give Jesus a hard time, especially when he affiliates when he socializes with those that are viewed as people outside the covenant of God, meaning those that are non-Jews and even within Judaism, those who are viewed as lower than or not trying to be faithful to the covenant of God. Uh, some of that is obviously needed at times because we have a tendency to wander, uh, and so we need correction and we need admonition but the, what the Pharisees did went a little further than that. Uh, they, they believed they had a hyper-spirituality because of who they were and because of their, their pure 
actions and their separatist ways, and Jesus is trying to get through to them that they will never be who they are supposed to be to the world if they act in that way. That we must reach out, we must love those that the world deems unlovable, we must go after those that that are outside the covenant of God because many of us, or all of us, were outside the covenant of God before God came seeking us. Amen? So, the message that he is trying to give here is, is, should pull at all of our heartstrings, all of our heartstrings. We have not heard of the Pharisees and teachers of the law say anything since the Sabbath meal in chapter 14, but now as Jesus walks along and teaches, Luke gives us a glimpse into their side talk as Jesus ministers to the crowd. And what Luke is trying to help us see is hard to miss. And that is that those that should know the will of God, those that supposedly know the word of God, those that should recognize him and follow him and love him and listen to him are the very ones that do not, that shun him and that give him a hard time and that ultimately would be responsible for putting him on the cross. And those that were outside, those that were viewed as less than and lower than were the very ones who were clinging to the very words that Christ spoke. So we see in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's significant. Those that were viewed as outside the covenant possibly by the Pharisees as those that were not worthy of being in covenant, are the very ones that are drawn to Christ and his message. And the scripture says in chapter 15, verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, grumbled about him, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They did not understand Christ's purpose in spending time with those that the Pharisees had already written off. And there's one thing about Jesus, if you're a true follower of him, you have learned in your time in following him. Jesus will never write you off, ever. That's not what he does. Jesus is a shepherd, the one chief shepherd. And the one thing that shepherd will always do is pursue you because you are his sheep. So he initiates the parables in that very fashion. He initiates the parables as put, helping the, these religious leaders have a different perspective. Have you ever needed a different perspective before, amen? You ever had somebody to come and give you a different perspective on things? I have multiple times, and I would, I would say that it would go a long way in your life to not be so hard-headed to always be willing to listen to what somebody else says and to give you a different perspective. So Jesus gives these leaders a different perspective, and he does it by giving them three parables that are metaphorical in nature. The first one that he gives them, he points to himself and he talks about the sheep. So he told them this parable, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. 
And when he is found it, he lays it on, its shoulders, on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. So he leaves the 99, and he goes after the one. The one in this case that he is trying to get through to the Pharisees and those religious leaders, the one that he has gone after are the tax collectors and the sinners because there would be sheep among the tax collectors and sinners because as I look out here this morning, this congregation is full of tax collectors and sinners, amen? As I am in the pulpit today. So the lost sheep should not be neglected, should not be ignored, or counted as worthless and despised. That is not the way the shepherd treats his sheep. Every sheep is precious and every sheep worth the risk of going after it. The next parable he gives is the parable of lost coin. And it goes like this, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, the coin here is obviously metaphorical for a lost soul. A coin is lifeless in and of itself, doesn't think, doesn't move, doesn't walk, doesn't know that it's lost. That's the point. And in this case, it would be the tax collectors and the sinners, and the woman is metaphorical as the church or the Holy Spirit. Either one is fine, and she lights a lamp and sweeps the house carefully. So the truth of the gospel is preached, and it progresses. Sweeping and the cleaning and the searching is the Holy Spirit progressing, diving deep down into the far crevices of our hearts and minds. You can be no Jonah and run the opposite direction and hop on a ship and go the opposite way from where God has asked you to and believe that you are escaping from God. There is no place on earth that you can hide from him. No coin can hide from him. No man can hide from him. You cannot hide your sinful thoughts nor your sinful actions. God knows them all. But in this parable, the Holy Spirit, as she sweeps and she lights a lamp and she looks, you can apply Hebrews 4.12 to this. I love this verse. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The lost soul cannot hide from God. We cannot hide from God. The sheep cannot hide from God. No one can hide from God. And in this parable, the woman is seen as lost, as she's lost a coin. The lost coin is a lost soul. She's the Holy Spirit and she is searching for the coin. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the angels rejoice. When she finds it, she rejoices. And in this parable, it's a little different. All of heaven rejoices when the sheep is found, but specifically when the coin is found, the angels rejoice. 
And it was pointed out by many throughout church history that the reason why the angels are pointed out as rejoicing is because this, this lost soul has been saved and been rescued from the pit of hell by belief in salvation in the gospel. And no one knows better, no one knows better than the angels of God what awaits the soul in hell, the person that has rejected Christ. No one knows better what it is like, what it appears to be in those other non-elect angels that have fallen that are now in minions with Satan. No one knows better than angels. And so they rejoice because one has been saved from the pit. One has been found and converted and is now a child of God. And so now he goes into the parable of the prodigal son. And the parable, this parable, more than the parable of the Good Samaritan even, has been object of more theological commentary from the early church to the present, and it has commended itself as the subject of more painters and artists as you saw when Ken, right there, painters and artists, composers and musicians, dramatists, writers and poets than any other parable of Jesus. And I believe that is because we can relate. And I can tell you now, as a 54-year-old man and father of four, I can tell you that I relate more deeply to this story now than I ever have in my life. Being a parent of little children is completely different than being a parent of teenagers. Can I get a witness? Can I get a louder witness? Thank you. We preachers don't have it all figured out either. We don't. We struggle to manage our home well just like everybody does. And this parable has helped me and I hope that this parable helps you. And I can remember when I was 26 years old and I had basically been a prodigal for about eight years. I was tired of home for a lot of different reasons, primarily selfish reasons but I was tired of being home. And so I left, but I didn't go to a far country, although it certainly seemed like a far country. But I went to college, and I basically wrote my family off and lived off a trust fund that my grandfather had set up for me from a very young age to go to college. And so there I was. And I lived exactly how I wanted to live for the next several years. And God allowed me to eat the fruit of my own way. And let me tell you, I threw up a lot of that fruit on the floor, amen? It was rotten, it was nasty, it was vile. But on the surface, what did it look like? Beautiful, right? Until you ate it and digested it, and tried to live upon the false promises and the false assurance that it provided, did you know that it was the wrong way? And for years, years, I shut out my grandmother's tears. I shut out my dad's 
voice and profanity occasionally, amen? I shut out my mother's pleads. I shut out everybody's voices and did exactly what I wanted to do for several years. And it is only by the grace, the miraculous grace of God. Let me say that again. It is only by the miraculous grace of God and the state of Mississippi, amen, that I am standing here today as a gospel preacher, happily married for 22 years with four beautiful children, only by the grace of God, only. If I had had it my way, I would be burning in eternal hell right now, dead, not here. That's the pathway I chose very early in life. And it was, a, it was the decision that I made on my own based upon what I wanted irregardless of what God wanted for me in my life. And I knew I had been raised up in church. I'd been going to First Baptist Church Greenville for the majority of my life. Now, we did stop around the time I was in ninth grade, didn't go back for several years. I was falsely converted uh, around that time. So, I mean, I knew, I had heard the truth. I had heard the gospel, but I'd never surrendered my life to it. Never. Hated going to church. Very rarely will you hear a child say they hate vacation Bible school, but when I tell you I hated vacation Bible school, I hated vacation Bible school. I would try to come up with every excuse in the world to not go to church that week for vacation Bible school. I did not want to memorize scripture. I did not even want the juice and cookies and the snacks, amen? I, I, didn't, even, I didn't want to go. So when I tell you that this, that this parable reaches down into my heart, you, you need to listen to what I'm saying to you. I, I have given my life to, to being a gospel preacher now for 22 years. It has not been the smoothest vocational selection, amen? It has been extremely difficult. The theological differences that you have to battle with in other people, the, the difficulties when one person wants something this way and one person wants something that way. Christ gets lost in all of that somehow. But I can tell you that I, when I came home, that song, Ken, was the end of it. Sometimes you can only find the thing that you really need at home. Man, <laughs> golly. I mean, that was me. I mean, God put it in my heart, and I, I, to this day, I understand why. I didn't get all the answers that I wanted, but I got a lot of them. I got a lot of the answers. But he put it in my heart to pack up my stuff and go home and go back to my home church and start this walk with him over. And that's what I did, and it's been very different. Amen? Very different. So join me in verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Well, that's a heart stuffer right there, is it not? One verse into the parable and we've got a younger son wanting to cruise, and not only does he want to leave, but he wants everything that's rightly his before, before he leaves. 
or right here at this point, we don't know that he's going to leave. Right here at this point, he's just asking for what's his. So what does the father do? He divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. Remember, that happened in God's sovereignty, amen? God's sovereignty. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed, say the word, pigs. What kind of boy was this? Jewish boy, yeah. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Wow. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has made it back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. You think those at the party knew what was going on? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. And that's probably exactly how it was said. My son. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And all God's people said, amen, yes. So 
Today, we're going to have one point. No cheers, no hallelujahs. Okay. One point. <clears throat> we're going to do two verses, and if you haven't noticed, I am going to squeeze this story for every theological nugget and truth that I can over the next two or three Sundays. So where are we going to be next Sunday? Where are we going to be the Sunday after that? Just to take any suspense away that if you were wondering. And let me tell you what, it's going to be worth every second that we spend in it. Okay? So let's begin. Today, all we're going to talk about are these two verses. And your point here is the younger son abandons his family. The younger son abandons his family. If you want to put a, if you want to put a topic, or I believe the theological reality of what the son is, is dealing with, right out there to the right of that, selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now we know the next verse is that he, that he, that he cuts a trail. Okay, he leaves. And that's why I say this, this point, the younger son abandons his family because that is exactly what this young man's doing. There's no way to sugarcoat that. If you don't agree with that, you can send me an email or come up here next week and talk to me about it. I'm always open to talk to you about theological things. And that's painful. Uh, it, it is, and it's difficult to hear, but that's what makes this story so powerful is because it reaches into our hearts and it confronts us with the reality that sometimes our children leave. And it hurts. Amen? It hurts. So after studying this for years and, and restudying many commentators on this parable, I believe that we are being given a glimpse into a family that has had an unnamed, deeply scarring tragedy. Okay? Now, now I realize that's not in the text. But when you, re when you read this parable, so some something has gone on with this family. Something. We don't know what, and it really doesn't matter. But we know that these two boys are not okay. They're not okay. They're not. We can just see it from the, from the parable itself. Because of the reaction of the oldest son at the very end to this, there is already scars there. There's already animosity there that this whole situation just aggravates and takes it to a zenith. So there's some, some deep scar and tragedy going on. Notice the mother is never mentioned, and the two sons seem to be estranged, and the father seems to have been unable to reconcile them as they have entered into their teenage years. The parable begins on a shocking and unexpected note. Shocking and unexpected. The younger son breaks societal protocol by making a demand from his father that breaks all the rules in the timing of the request, give me my share of the estate. According to Jewish custom, property was inherited through the male line from father to son, Deuteronomy 21, 17. So a man with two sons would give two-thirds of his estate to the first son and one-third to the second. 
So property was normally disposed of by a will executed at the father's death, not by request when he was still what? Yeah. So the younger son's request is shameful. Shames the father, shames the family. And if you read history and context at this time, this would have been really close to an unforgivable offense for the son to demand this at this time father. So one son is eager to leave the home. The other is described as a hard worker. And many times that is the way it happens. The older son is the one that accepts the responsibility early on and trains to one day be the family patriarch and take the family business forward. The younger son is sometimes the one that is seen as the less disciplined of the two, the one that doesn't take things quite as seriously, may try to find ways to avoid work if possible. And again, these characterizations can't be pushed too far because the text doesn't explicitly describe the family in that way, but something is not right with father and son's farm co-op of Judea. Amen? Something's just not right. Another reality to point to when comparing to the other parables, the sheep and the lost coin is the ratio of the loss and the value of each item that is lost. One out of a hundred sheep has wandered away and become lost. Is a sheep valuable to a shepherd? Yes. And then one out of ten coins has become lost. Is a coin valuable to the woman? Yes. But we have one of two sons has wandered away. And brothers and sisters, how valuable is a child in comparison to sheep and coins? It's, it's immeasurable. It is absolutely immeasurable. I love animals. I've always been picked on my whole life. You hate animals, Shelby. No, I don't hate animals. Humans come first in my world. Sorry. I'm just sorry as I can be about that. Does everybody hear that on live feed so there's no mistake? Humans come first in my life, Sec animals come second. So, of course, it's important, but, but, but nothing. Nothing will keep you awake at night like a child, amen? Nothing, except maybe a spouse, maybe. But nothing will drive you mad like trouble with one of you. It will drive you mad, absolutely mad and that is what we see here the worry the stress the loss the reality of losing a child is by far the more catastrophic loss those of us that have lost children would nod our heads in agreement no matter how the loss happens it's tough another indicator that there may be problems is there's no mention of the mother we hear of the father we hear of the sons we hear of the servants and friends we hear nothing of mothers or sisters something probably has happened in the past to lead to this moment just like those of us that are listening today and those that were listening back then they had things in their past as they were relating to this story everybody's own narrative is being pulled into what jesus is saying everyone And the major indicator that there is a major problem is the opening verse. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. Deuteronomy 21.17 stipulated that the younger son would receive half of what the elder son receives or one-third of the estate. And doing this while the father was still alive was extremely rare and frowned upon by all the leaders in Judaism. All the leaders. 
So put yourself in this position. You are the father. You have two sons that are working age, so they are most likely in their teenage years. Teenage years. We are not told how far apart in age they are. The younger son calls a meeting with you privately one day and somewhat flippantly and abruptly requests request his share of his inheritance to be put under his control right then and there. Now this request had to completely stun the father when it was asked of him, or maybe, maybe he had sensed it was coming. We don't know. There's not enough there to it. Maybe many of us here today have sons. I mean, how would it hit us if our son came up to us out of the blue and said, Dad, I want my share of the estate? Some of us would laugh because we have no estate, amen? <laughs> so you want half a Jeep? What do you want? What do you want, son? I mean, what, what, what do I have that you need, right? So that, you know, that would be one interesting conversation. One interesting conversation. The, the father probably thought he was joking at first. Yeah, right, whatever, son. Go back to the field and finish your day of work, and then we'll talk more about this later. But when his facial expression didn't blink and didn't laugh and didn't change, the father knew he was being serious, and then our knee-jerk response would be something like, are you what? Crazy? Are you, are you nuts? No, you can't have your share of the estate. Do you realize how hard that is to do? I mean, why would you want your share of the estate now? Are you thinking about leaving the family farm? I mean, where, where would you, where, what, would you, what would you do? Then your next set of questions might be, son, what have you gotten yourself into, right? What have you gotten yourself into? Do you, do you owe money to somebody? Is that what's going on? I mean, are you in trouble with the law? Have you been sued? Are you on drugs? Or, here's my favorite, what's her name, son, right? What's her name? We don't have to do it this way. What's her name? What's her name? By asking that question to his father, the younger son is basically telling his father that he wished he was dead so that he could have his share of the farm because typically the family assets were not dispersed until the primary owner of the farm was deceased. I mean, that's how asset allocation and inheritance has been done in English law forever, forever, and in Jewish law. So this request was extremely selfish, casting aside any regard for the needs of anyone else but himself. Give me my share of the estate. He didn't want some be sure you get that. He didn't want some of his share of the estate, not just a portion. He wanted the entire estate given to him. And you want to know, you want to know what I hear behind that statement. And you may have heard this before if you have children or if you have nieces and nephews or, or if you've been dealing with teenagers at all. You know what I hear behind that statement? Dad, you may can finish it. I'm... 18, and I can do what I want to with my money. Yeah, you're not laughing too hard because it's true, amen? I mean, how many of us have heard that before? It's a terrifying thing to hear. 
I mean, we as adults know exactly what that means. We know the decisions that are made based on that statement, and many times the wake of horrible decisions and legal trouble that results from that arrogant attitude, we know all about that, that all of a sudden, now that you're 18, you're ready to take on the world, right? Take on the world. For some reason, many children, when they hit that age, as this younger son did, become tired of living at home. This young man, as many do, desired to be free from parental restraint. He was convinced that by being by himself away from the eyes of his parents, he would be able to do whatever he wanted to, and this freedom would make him happy. That's what he believed. And that's why he wanted to leave. Is that a good reason or a bad reason? Bad reason, bad reason. Oh, how wrong he was. And in the coming Sundays, we will do a deep dive into this and see exactly how wrong he was and how wrong our other children are when they have these thoughts. He thought wrongly that his freedom would actually be better for him than the loving care and advice he was constantly receiving from his father at home. Now, don't get me wrong, because I know there's people out here in this congregation today right now who say, well, pastor, you don't understand. I left home when I was 18 because so-and-so and so-and-so was happening to me. I'm not saying that there's not a place for 18-year-olds to leave home in, in some cases. I'm not saying that at all. I understand that. But what I am saying is that just because you're 18 years old, don't think you're ready to step out and do life. I thought I was. And I left a pathway of destruction that took me 10 years after I was saved to finally clean up the mess that I caused in the few years that I left home and thought I knew what I was doing. And that, I know that's a pretty common problem. Amen? That's a pretty common problem. So as we begin to go into the parable of the prodigal son, I want us over this next week, as we go through this, I want us to, to think about this younger son and think about this, this selfish ambition that, that conquered his heart and made him go to his loving father and tell him to break out my wealth now out of this estate and give it to me because I want to go live on my own. Think about that. That's about as anti-family as anything I've ever heard. What does God, what, what, is, what does God think about family? Tell me about that. What is, does he love family or does, is he for family or against family? For it, 100%. Now, we know our children ain't going to live at home all, praise God, ain't going to live with us all our lives, amen? <laughs> we know that. We know that. And praise God, they're not. We'd never be able to buy a boat, amen? <laughs> but there is... There is a godly way of doing it and an ungodly way of doing it. Now, in this case, thank God, it worked out great because somehow the father knew that he wasn't going to put up a fight with his younger son. He knew that son well enough to know that, that fighting him and trying to force him to stay, all that was going to do was push him further away and, and, and possibly forever. So he knew, he knew his son well enough to know, I've got to do this. If I want my son back, what do I have to do? I got to let him go. 
So I'm not necessarily speaking to fathers. I'm speaking to, to myself back when I was this age and to other teenagers today. Don't, don't, don't think your freedom from your parents is going to be some kind of magical formula that's just going to send you stellar. Don't, don't listen to what social media tells you, amen? You want to know the truth, you open the Bible and you read it. Don't you trust nothing on them cell phones unless it's a godly preacher telling you to love and honor and respect your parents, okay? That's what I'm telling you. There are so many lies out there. This culture has become so anti-family, it is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Don't listen to what the world tells you about your family. Don't. And I know there's tough, tough things going on out there. I'm, I'm no fool. I'm no fool. I know there's godless fathers. I know there's godless mothers. I know there's abuse. I know there's alcoholism. I know, and in those kind of situations, there has to be some form of intervention from the family. I am not speaking to those situations, okay? I know that. I'm speaking to the families where there's a mother and a father, and there's, they're trying to raise you in a proper way, and they love you, and they're doing the best that they can, but you and your selfish ambition, you decide that you think you've got a better way and you want to get away from mom and daddy's rules. You want to get away from mom and daddy's house. You want to get away from all this stuff that's got you where you are. You want to get away from all of it and do it on your own. That's dangerous. Dangerous. And not to say, I'll just throw this in there, not to say that there haven't been people that have done that and have done fine. That happens. But more than not, they don't. Most of the time, they don't because they're not ready. Man, I was 26 years old and went out on my own, and I wasn't ready. Wasn't ready. I, I am, I, somebody told me when I was about 12 or 13 years old, I think it was my next-door neighbor, Ms. Lane. Uh, her husband died a couple years ago. I went to the funeral and saw her. I think she was the one. She said, Shelby, has anybody told you that you're a late bloomer? And I was like, no, ma'am, what does that mean? She said, well, it just means that you're going to make a whole lot of mistakes and have to learn the hard way before you understand, you know, the, the right way to do things in life. And I was like, oh, okay, so that's not a good thing. She was like, well, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not really a good thing either. It's just kind of, you know, who you are. And I was like, okay, okay. And you know what? She was absolutely right. That's why I'm a 54-year-old dad of an 8-year-old, amen? <laughs> Late bloomer. But thank God for Chloe's sake, I didn't have her 25 years ago, amen? That would have been a disaster for me and her because God's timing is perfect and he loves us and he's with us. So we'll close with that. Um, so be thinking about this prodigal son next few weeks. Be thinking about it. Get in your Bible, read, study, and, and pay, pay special, special attention to our teens, amen, to our teenagers. They're, they're, you do realize that their lives are pulled 40 different directions. You do realize that, right? 40 different directions. And they need to be able to depend on us to be solid, to be loving, to be caring, and to be there for them. Not to be yes people in their lives. That's the last thing we need to be is to tell them yes about everything they want to do. But we need to prepare them, equip them, and prepare them for life without us. Because we're not always going to be around. I know that's hard to believe. But I'm not always going to be here. Some of y'all are really happy about that, I'm sure, right? I'm not always going to be here. 
And I don't mean like I'm leaving the church. I mean like physically alive. One day I will be gone and I will not be here to love and help and support my children. And I remind them of that on a regular. Well, Dad, that's morbid. I don't want to hear about you down. I said, it's, it's morbid, but it's true. It's true. So use me while you got me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this parable and just the shocking, heart-wrenching value of what you have given us in Christ's words. We want to live soberly, Father. We want to live in a way to where we don't think we have all the answers so that there is a constant dependency upon you and your word and your spirit guiding us as we try to navigate this difficult place that we live, this difficult place where we are commissioned by you to be your children and to show the world something different in your church. And so, Father, I pray over the next several weeks that you would help us to glean valuable insight, valuable insight from this, from this story of the, of, the, of the prodigal son. Help us to look at this story and, and study it, not just in one passing, but to dig into it, Lord, to dig into it and try to extrapolate out of it just riches that help us, that may change our lives over the next several weeks coming into Christmas. And Father, if there's one here today that does not know you, I pray that your word, that your forgiveness, that, that your, your spirit would convict hearts of their sin and bring them to repentance and faith, Lord, in you, and to walk with you anew, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.